0: colonization sits in my bones as I'm sitting at home and they tell me unfold your legs and sit with respect because being brown was all about what people thought of me and what people saw in me mm-hmm. our women don't vote over their legs they said see nor do the women in the royal family is that what happened when we adopted their ideology porcelain skin born into power producing prejudice power brings popularity and popularity bought my people when my friend is asked about the lightness in her skin, she tells him that she is mixed with rape, that the answer was rape, that her grandmother was a child of rape, that her great-grandmother produced a child from being raped by her slave master, and colonization it swims in her blood. My skin became many things but my own. I was asked about the brown of my skin and why it didn't blend in into the pinks of my palm, I wondered why God didn't blend my borders, why was I an unfinished piece? My skin would become terrorised by Western standards of beauty telling me what I need to be. They had me scrubbing a little harder on my face to abolish my pigmentation and they had me looking a little longer at lightning products on shop shelves and they had me waking up earlier to straighten the culture straight out of my hair. Glowing up they'd say, don't stay out in the sun, you'll get too dark. So now I stay out in the sun till my complexion glistens gold, till diamonds form on my face, till my skin bakes my ancestors back to life to have their stories retold.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of a brand new season of the Critically Speaking Podcast. My name is Jafar Ekbal. I'm a creative and a critical commentator, but most importantly, I'm your host. I'll be guiding you through a series of important and lively conversations about systemic racism and white privilege in the Welsh arts sector. As you will have noticed, the voice at the very beginning wasn't mine. Each episode of this series will start with a creative contribution from one of our featured artists, echoing the themes that will be discussed later on. But also, giving another platform to some of Wales' finest artists of colour. The piece you heard today was Skin, written and performed by the brilliantly talented Jaffrin Khan. Based in Cardiff, Jaffrin is a writer, she's a spoken word artist, and she's a visual artist. Since graduating with a BA in English, Jaffrin has performed at numerous events and had her words printed in several publications. It was an absolute honour to open up this season with her writing, and I encourage everyone to find her on Instagram, where her handle is underscore J-X-F-F-R-I-N. Now, the first discussion you got to here is with Tamara Harvey, who has been Artistic Director of Theatre Cloyd in World since 2015. Tamara has been a freelance director for over 15 years, working on new plays, classics, musicals, and in film. And she was also an Associate Director at the Bush Theatre in London. With the results of the US election fresh in our minds at the time, we started by discussing the creative contributions... So let's not waste any more time. This is episode one of the Critically Speaking Podcast, season two.
2: It was really exciting to hear so many voices that I don't know. So I knew a couple of them.
1: Which ones did you know? I'm guessing Connor, he probably knew.
2: Yeah, Connor and I haven't got the list up in front of me. One of the others I'd come across. It was exciting with my professional artistic director hat on, and I guess as a director as well. Of course, anything that expresses so personally for in lots of them difficult experiences and experiences that I, in different ways, shapes and forms, feel part of or responsible for or part of the fabric of what's being described, that's always going to be tough listening.
1: Was there a piece that stood out to you at all? I mean, I know that I kind of lent you towards Peace uh, Skin.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the one I that I listen to the most. So I listened to... it's um, Anything that arrives on a Sunday, I have to listen to late at night because I've got two small children. Of course. Um, so I focused on skin. There were lots of different things for me. I mean, there was an interesting personal thing around... This is a side note, really, in terms of what we're talking about, but my husband has vitiligo, which is the condition where you lose the pigment in your skin. And so for him, being out in the sun is a very particular thing tied up with shame about his appearance and how he feels about the change that that creates and how it's all kind of caught up in his very identity. And I guess that, you know, when I had that, when I had those thoughts, there is a part of me that then immediately feels guilty that I'm making those kind of connections. And yet often our way into understanding or even the, the kind of baby steps towards understanding is through some kind of personal experience, isn't it? Or a connection that we make.
1: To be honest with you, I mean, one of the reasons why I pushed that piece towards you was because of the allusions to motherhood and parenthood and, and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, okay, this probably will resonate most with you.
2: I guess listening to all of them in the context of this moment with Biden and Harris's success is so powerful. It was extraordinary, wasn't it, for all of us in different ways, that moment of seeing them walk onto that stage. And for me as a woman, of course, that's something that immediately hits. But also seeing a woman of color, a mixed race woman, the Child of Immigrants, you know, all of those things. And then listening to all of these different pieces. It's a curious thing, isn't it? That moment where it feels like a huge step forward has been taken. And yet, there are still so many
1: steps. I hope you don't want me asking this because it's about your kids. And obviously you do not talk about your kids if you don't want to. They're your kids. But have you had conversations with them about this sort of stuff? Or have they had conversations with you about it?
2: conversations about race.
1: About about what's going on, even if they don't perhaps understand what's going on.
2: It's a really difficult thing, I think. I find it very difficult to judge how much to talk with particularly the four and a half year old. I mean, the two and a half year old, that's a different thing about what's going on in the world, whether that's the pandemic, whether that's Black Lives Matter, whether that's the American election. I find that there's a real tension between wanting to wrap them in cotton wool and protect them and wanting them to understand the world that they're entering. But one of the things I am acutely aware of and really struggle with is the fact that they are growing up in North Wales in an overwhelmingly white population and how to navigate that. So I was born in Botswana and I directed my first show out there In London, I lived in Woolworth in Southeast London, and then only moved here just before I found out I was pregnant just after getting this job. So I'm acutely aware of how very different the world that my children are looking at is from the world that I've spent most of my life in. I felt like it was okay, as long as They were coming to the theatre lots and there were, you know, they were seeing lots of different people of different colours, of different backgrounds at the theatre. And also, we spent a lot of time in London visiting my parents. But the pandemics stopped all of that, all of it. So I'm acutely aware of the narrowness of the world they experience now and trying to change that with the television they watch and the books that we read. But still, it's not the same.
1: Were you aware of what you were walking into when you moved to Flintshire? No. (laughs) Did you (laughs) you not know how white it was?
2: I don't think I knew quite how white it was. I'd come up for a weekend before I applied. I knew Snowdonia a bit from childhood holidays, but I didn't really know this little pocket. I think I probably thought... There was more kind of interaction between Liverpool and Manchester and maybe even Chester. But also I hadn't been a mum before. And I think that changes the filter that you see the world through because you just see things in a different way. More acutely aware of the world that your children are walking through than I think even the world that you're walking through.
1: Cloyd is the regional theatre in, I'd say, North Wales, is that fair to say?
2: Certainly the largest and certainly the largest producing house. So Venue Cymru is just up the road, but that's a presenting house only. And Pontio, of course, is only an hour away, but that also produces a bit and we're co-producing with them this Christmas, but they're more a presenting house. And then there are smaller companies like Franwen and stuff. But yeah, we're the largest producing house for sure.
1: You are this big regional company. You're one of the biggest in the country. And again, Flintshire is, I saw a stat. Yeah, it's ninety-eight percent white. Who is Cloyd making work for?
2: I think we're making. It, yeah, it's a really tricky question, isn't it? We're making work for our communities, of course, but that doesn't mean that it can only reflect our communities. So that's really important. But we are also making work for the wider world. So if we just skip ourselves back to March, because the figures get very difficult post-March. But prior to that, we had about just over 200,000 people through our doors in the previous year. And over 200,000 people saw a Theatre Cluid show elsewhere in the UK. So that for me is an important factor as well. Of course, our kind of first responsibility, our first duty has to be to our communities, which is about a 45 minute drive radius. But beyond that, we also do take our work out into the wider world. The thing that I've learned in this job so far is almost that I know less and less. Whenever I've tried to program in a way that I think the audience is um, kind of in a traditional way, if you like, in a way that I think the audiences will respond to traditionally. Whenever I've tried to be cynical, if you like, about programming and tried to make it about bums on seats, it's backfired. And when I've been bold, when I've programmed the work that I think really matters, which I try to do most of the time, that's when they've responded. So, you know, I programmed The Importance of Being Earnest, which I think is a great comedy and a brilliant piece of writing. But I was doing it because I thought it would be a popular title. And they didn't flock to it. And when I programmed Jumpy by April D'Angeles, which felt like a really risky thing to do, and unknown, for our audiences, an unknown play by an unknown writer, they booked in their droves. So I think the thing that I do know about our audiences now, that I didn't five years ago, is that they are unpredictable. They want to be surprised, they want to be challenged, they want to see exciting new work as much as they want to see revivals of classics. And they want to feel like they're getting a sneak preview. You know, like we're making something that they get to see the world premiere.
1: You talked about traditional and I wanted to bring up panto. Your pantos are all white, as far as I'm aware There They have been for the last three or four years. Were you aware of that when you were looking at your class and going, hey, everyone's white?
2: I'm deeply aware of it and I'm really ashamed of it. And frustratingly, this year was going to be the first year that that wasn't going to be true it's not good enough and anything I say is just going to be in line with it's not good enough. So it's a conversation that the director and I had every year and every year the director and the casting director and Tao, who's our musical director, really, uh, I, I this is where I really struggle because what I want to say is they really tried, but they failed. So the correct response to that would be they didn't try hard enough. And Tayo and I have been talking a lot about why specifically casting actor musicians of colour seems to be so difficult. And I think a lot of the time it's because we tend to go down the traditional casting routes or the historically trod casting routes, specifically for actor musicians. And as Tayo was saying, those aren't necessarily where you will find the actor musicians of color because they haven't necessarily followed a traditional or a, traditional feels like such a wrong word. They've followed their own traditional route into actor musicianship, but not necessarily the one that is about, you know, a BA in actor musicianship and then an agent from such and such and all of that. So he and I have been figuring out how we can create some kind of a database of actor musicians of colour specifically for pantos because that feels like it's a first baby step.
1: Is that the failure that you weren't able to find actor musicians who were of colour or that there weren't enough of a pool that you were aware of? Is that the failure that you're referring to?
2: Yeah, and I guess it is about a pool because there are a number of actor musician pantos across the country. It's a very... Specific set of requirements. I mean, the cast for our panto are just insanely talented. So we ask them to be singers and dancers and to be able to play two instruments or more because we have a relatively small cast. We can't get away with only one instrument unless sometimes that's not true. If it's the drummer, it then becomes this really complicated Venn diagram about, well, this person is really brilliant, but actually. We need a person in that specific role or we need someone in this mix who plays bass. So it's no good to us that they only play flute and clarinet. We need them to be able to do this thing as well. So I can completely understand how the team ended up in that place over the last few years. But it's not a place that we will ever allow ourselves to be in again.
1: It sounds like... Whether rightly or wrongly, you are putting the creative needs of a production ahead of the casting. Isn't that the issue, not just in terms of casting, but in all areas of arts positions where you have this, not just people of colour, but other disadvantaged communities where they have had the opportunity to learn more than one instrument, if, if at all. So you're automatically just disregarding them.
2: Well, I think you are if you start the process too late. So I think there is a different version of the process where you start it much earlier and where you put more resource towards it. So you can say, okay, for example, you play keys and you dabble a bit in bass. We're going to pay for you to have bass lessons for the next six months so that by the time we get to Panto, you're ready for the role in the wider sense that we need you to play. The other thing that is challenging and Tao talks a lot about this is that he has previously cast someone who didn't have two instruments, because they were an actor of color, not because they were an actor of color, they were also very talented. But you know, he has made that choice that we are talking about, and has felt as though he put them in a really difficult position, because they were then the only person in the company who didn't, and has felt like that wasn't necessarily the right decision either. So I think I don't think the solution can be, okay, well, look, you can be the one person who doesn't play two instruments and that's okay because you're an actor of color. So brilliant, you take that box. You know, that's where it gets really difficult, isn't it? So in fact, you've got to look at other options that are about... Providing that training or developing that person's skills in the different directions with them, if that's what needs to happen.
1: To push it out a little bit, then, not even just panto, but just like, how do you make sure that you're not just kind of going, hey, we're going to stick a black person in there or we're going to stick a South Asian person in there? Because by putting them on there, we're now saying, hey, we're we're doing the right thing.
2: I don't know that I know the answer to that. And I don't, oh, I hope, I believe that that's not the way that I function but I am in a moment of course where I'm challenging all of those things about myself and where I'm making sure that there are other people in the room challenging as well so we've formed an anti-racism working group with members of our core staff members of our wider freelance company and members of our community and these are all questions that we're wrangling with so in our last meeting the 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 really knotty topic that came up was the one of quotas or targets and everyone in the room had a different feeling about that. I guess the way to make sure that you're not being tokenistic is to ensure that an awareness of all the different needs of any different project is threaded through every single decision right from the get-go and that the stories you're telling and the people who have written those stories or created those stories um that the demands of those stories are as diverse and also include stories about or of from people of color so that it's deeply rooted into the project itself, I guess. I feel like I'm making no sense. And interestingly, uh, you went into silhouette just as i was rambling through that completely nonsensical sentence it's just tough isn't it it's a really good and important question how do you make sure you're not being tokenistic but i don't know i don't know how to even begin navigating the question
1: you mentioned about challenging yourself and asking yourself these questions to make sure that, that you are doing the right thing how, how would you define whiteness how how would you define you
2: i don't know and I'm not even certain that I have the right to define it.
1: Can you explain why, why you think that is? Why you don't think you have the right to define it? Because we've defined BME.
2: But I'm not sure. Well, I certainly don't think I can or should define BME. So arguably, I guess, to counter that, I should be able to define whiteness. But I don't know that I can. I was talking with my husband this morning about this conversation and about the pieces that I was listening to yesterday and about a session I'd done not all that long ago on unconscious bias and the kind of need I felt in myself to say, as I did at the beginning of this conversation, probably wrongly, to say, I was born in Botswana. It's that same impulse that people have when they want to go, some of my best friends are gay. And it's awful, isn't it? But it is to do with defining oneself or wanting to set oneself in a different context. And I guess that's why I'm hesitant about defining whiteness, because every different person's experiences, attitudes, understanding is so different. And it's part of the reason why, at the beginning of this conversation, I said, Is there a terminology that you would be more comfortable with? Because I want to make sure that I'm not stepping into a room with people of colour and assuming that people of colour is the right term to use or assuming that any of the other terms are the right term
1: to use. Has that happened in your conversations of late where you've come into a space where that offence has been caused or there's been friction because of something like that?
2: Uh, Yes, I used the term... I can't remember whether I used the term people of colour, or whether I was talking specifically about black people. And the person I was speaking to, I think we were also talking about the term mixed race. And they are mixed race, but hate the term mixed race. I can't remember whether I was causing offence by using the term black people or causing offence by using the term mixed race, but it was one of the two.
1: Why are all of the arts leaders in Wales white?
2: Well, I imagine part of the reason is because the panels that have selected them were Certainly the panel that selected me was, and I wish it were just Wales, but actually if we look across the wider UK, there are more leaders of colour, but still very few. And because of white privilege in both the wider UK and in Wales and the access that people have had to the arts and therefore the experiences that they've been able to gain and therefore are the people who've had enough, experience that is recognisable to those people who are making up the panels to be able to get in the room in the first place. I mean, it's a whole, it's layer upon layer upon layer, isn't it? Of white privilege, of access, of even an understanding of what different experiences might lead to someone being a good leader of an organisation.
1: You spoke earlier about the election and Kamala Harris and being the first woman of colour coming into it. So I I have to ask about Cully TRI. How did you feel when she got the job?
2: I was really excited. I didn't know her. My Joint Chief Exec did. I don't think I'd worked directly with her, but he'd been working in in Yorkshire. It was the most extraordinary moment to be in theatre in Wales because we had Cully coming in. We had Rachel at the Sherman. I had just arrived not all that long before Kate at the other room, Ellen at Pontio. So I think in the immediate, probably for me, and this, of course, in the context of me being white, her womanness was the thing that I was really excited by in terms of the rooms that we could be in together. It's been really noticeable in this last year how much those rooms have changed. And I feel bad saying that because I really like and admire and respect Joe and Lorne and Graham, um, Johnny, who's who's now at the Royal Welsh College, Arwell. But I was in a meeting the other day, and I realised that I was the only woman in a meeting of artistic directors, where just a couple of years ago that balance was completely the reverse. So yeah, I was really excited about Cully. I didn't know her particularly when all of that happened. I think it was only about a year after similar had happened with us at Cluid, in terms of a kind of outcry about our lack of support for understanding of engagement with Welsh and Wales-based artists. And I remember at the time someone saying to me, oh, this is the rotation. Every couple of years it'll happen to one of the organisations in Wales. It was your turn. Now it's NTW's turn. I'm not sure that that was true. But for that reason, I certainly had an understanding of, um, of how it felt to be running an arts organisation and attacked for lack of Welshness. And I guess for me to be running an arts organisation as someone who is not Welsh and attacked for lack of Welshness, I think it's far more difficult if you have the word national in your title. I'm very relieved, actually, that Theatre Cluid doesn't.
1: How did you feel when she left?
2: I think she's a really good human and I think she's a really interesting artist. She's um. She's lovely. (laughs) She's lovely. Uh, I don't feel like I got to know enough about the work and her vision for the company to be able to comment on that, actually. I hadn't seen very much of it, but I don't really want to wade into a conversation about NTW and, and that whole situation. But I think there was the potential there for there to be a really beautiful interweaving of the international, the outward looking, and the nurturing of Welsh and Wales based artists, I don't think the two had to stand in opposition to each other.
1: Obviously, BLM happened and then you kind of put out a small statement and there was a little bit of criticism. There wasn't a huge amount of criticism, but there was some from some people who had worked with you. Do you want to just talk about that? Like, did that catch you by surprise? What was your reaction when people were like, well, you need to basically look at your own house?
2: Well, no, I wasn't surprised. I don't know what the right thing to do is in that moment. I don't think there is a right thing. I felt uncomfortable not putting out a statement and I felt uncomfortable putting out a statement. I think the statement is um I think it is important not to be silent but I think it is more important what you do alongside after the statement you know the yeah
1: um you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't.
2: Yeah and and rightly so. We're only damned if we do because We haven't been doing the right things. We haven't been working hard enough at it prior to that. But I put out that statement knowing that there would be reaction to it and knowing that that was right. And of course, not knowing who would or whatever.
1: The message you put out was more kind of, we stand behind everything that is happening right now, rather than it being like, this is what we're going to do. Was that a conscious decision?
2: Yes, it was. because. I wanted to make sure that anything we said we were doing, we were doing. And also that anything we did was in conversation with the wider community and specifically the community of freelancers of color, not just artists. That word artist is problematic, isn't it? Because of all the people who feel like they're not, but still part of it. You know, we were in conversation with... The Solidarity Project, we were not in conversation with, but we were attending the Privilege Cafe. We were one of the donor organizations for the setting up of the Wales Task Force. But I certainly feel like anything that we said in that moment, the day that statement went out, would not have been grounded in a true understanding either of what we should do or of what we could do or we're going to do. And I wanted to make sure that the steps, the actions that we took were genuine.
1: What weren't you doing that you are now doing or are planning on doing?
2: We didn't have an anti-racism working group. So we had an accessibility working group. And it was really noticeable for me that we didn't have an anti-racism working group, particularly in the context of the fact that all of our core staff are white. So even more important than to have people in the room who are people of colour, and talking to us about that. We had not done staff-wide program of anti-racism training, or even perhaps a wider staff program of conversation and discussion and understanding of, I think most importantly for me, what it might feel like as a person of color, what steps we could take to ensure that we are an organization who make it possible for freelancers of color That feels better than artists of color at the moment, if that's all right, to come and work with us. And then I guess, thinking more deeply and long term, how do we change the makeup of our core staff? And also, how do we make sure that our communities are understanding and learning about the different experiences of people of color in our country and beyond? oh, do you know what? There's so much that there's so much that we're not doing.
1: Is it just something that you just didn't even consider? Is that what it is? Ignorance is maybe a harsh word, but was it ignorance?
2: I don't think it was entirely ignorance. I think ignorance plays a part. But there had been instances of people either not wanting to come and work for us. I don't think so much that because of the staff, because you don't necessarily know when you get offered a job what the makeup of the staff are, but because of the area that we're in. So very early on, I had an actor turn down a role because the Brexit vote had just happened and Flincher was the first to declare to leave and they said, I don't want to come. And yeah, it was a really difficult moment, actually, as an artistic director to think, wow, my views sit in complete opposition to those of the community I serve. And of course, you know, the important thing in that is to remember that, yes, it was 52% of the vote, but not everyone voted and et cetera, et cetera. But I had an actor say, I don't want to be in mould given that. We've had an actor experience real discomfort because of being one of the only, not the only, but one of the only people of colour in the building when making a project. I don't think I was entirely ignorant. And I would hate to say that my wider team were but I think ignorance played a part. I also think though that fear of drawing attention to that ignorance or to that issue was part of it. I think one of the things that has happened that is really positive, although it feels very odd to use that word in this context, but one of the things that's happened that feels positive is that I now feel like I can, we can talk about these things, own up to being a bit shit, Until this moment, I think I would have felt scared to even draw attention to it. And that, of course, is wrong.
1: When does the guilt stop? When does the fragility stop? And you just go, just get on with it.
2: I think those are two quite different things again. I think when does the fragility stop now? That's part of it, isn't it? It's going to be uncomfortable. Deal with it. Welcome to the party. But I think when does the guilt stop is a different thing. And I think possibly never that that's not an excuse to stand still.
1: When did the light bulb go off and you went, the fragility has to stop?
2: I don't think it's one moment. I think it's a choice that you have to keep making. I had a really powerful and also deeply irritating experience when I directed Pride and Prejudice at Sheffield. And we had actors of colour in the Bennett family specifically, I mean, across the cast. And there was so much press about it was really difficult for the company. No, that's not entirely fair. I think it was positive for some of the company and difficult for others. That sense of, can we just stop talking about it? Because it makes it feel like I've only been cast in this role because I'm an actor of color, not because I'm the best person to play this role. the reason I talk about that is because I had a lot of conversations around then with the members of the company who were actors of color, with how that experience felt, with the different choices we make and the different stories we tell and who gets to tell what stories and all of those things. I don't think I carried that learning into being an artistic director enough, which is why I say I don't, I don't think there's one moment. We'll have to keep having that moment. You know, I had to have it when I got your email. Well, that sounds a bit scary. Well, fuck off, of course it is. You know, you've still got to do it. It's still an important conversation to have.
1: Going back to the actor who was uncomfortable because they were the only person of colour in the building. Not
2: in the building. In the project.
1: Yeah, sorry, in the project. And what you just mentioned about having, I guess, a duty of care for your cast and crew and making sure that they are comfortable. If you're in a building or in a project which is core white in an area which is majority white, if that artist of colour needs support, where can they turn to in that environment if everyone around them is more or less white?
2: Yeah, really good question. That's one of the things that we're figuring out and talking about. Interestingly, in that moment, the actor wasn't the only person of color in the building. There were a couple of other people and and didn't want to turn to those people. So I think there's also a difficult thing around presumption. You know, I, we in that instance shouldn't just presume that the person you might want to turn to for support or talk to about this is a stranger who happens to be of color who we happen to provide. Here you go. One size fits all. So that's tricky, isn't it? And I think also, On the other side of that, it would be wrong to assume that another person of color might be equipped to support, to offer support in that scenario. They might not have the experience or the knowledge or the training. I think there is a a really delicate thing around mental health, around how you can offer someone support. But I think, as with any moment where someone is suffering or in difficulties, and is a member of our company, and a wider company, you have to be able to offer a smorgasbord of different possibilities, different support options. And that's what we're trying to build up. There are still across North Wales, last piece of data that I saw, 40,000 people of colour. So whilst the percentages tell one story, I think the numbers tell a slightly different one. And that's the one that... I think it's really important to remember. Also, to remember when we're thinking about the makeup of the people who walk into our building as audience or as communities, you know, why aren't we reaching the 40,000 people of colour in our wider community? I mean, some of that is because North Wales is quite a large area. So, you know, how far you expect people to travel. But I think it's a bit dangerous sometimes to only talk in terms of the percentages.
1: Let's talk about what you've been doing. Um, You mentioned the anti racist working group, which sounds fantastic. What kind of conversations are happening in Flintshire right now about anti racism? What is it you're trying to achieve? Yeah, what
2: what on earth are we doing? So we are building up and working through an action plan that is trying to look at look across all the different aspects of our work. So on stage, off stage, core staff, freelancers, board, other governing bodies, communities. And it's kind of from the micro to the macro, I guess. We're in a particular moment at Cluid where we're about to move from being a part of Flintshire County Council into being an independent trust. So everything from going, okay, well, let's make sure we have all of the right policies, HR policies, documentation, all of that is being written at the moment because we've never had it as an independent trust. As I said, a really knotty debate conversation about quotas and targets. We're also trying to look backwards as well as forwards and understand what the data is. Because we're part of Lintry County Council, that's all a bit less robust than we would have liked. We're looking at the kind of wider team and the training and development and understanding that we can bring to the wider team. How we can work with partners. So we're a member of StageSight and we're part of a consortium with StageSight. We are in conversation with the Solidarity Project and Privilege Cafe, I mentioned, the task force, but then also trying to look across the country at other partnerships that might be possible, I guess, specifically with our community groups, because of the thing we talked about, a feeling like there is a very real danger growing up in Flintshire that you don't have any communication with or knowledge of the experiences of people of colour. And so what are the youth groups or community companies or other groups in other parts of the country that we might be able to partner with, to create work with, or to at least be in conversation with, to kind of broaden that experience? Sorry, I'm kind of not being very, um, I'm dotting about all over the place.
1: There's clearly a lot going on. And... Yeah. Is there an end game to what you do? Obviously, not end game to the actual work, but an end game to the conversations, if that makes sense.
2: I don't know. That's also part of the conversation. It's important to talk about it. It's also important not to virtue signal. I feel, I personally feel really uneasy with the idea of a press release that goes, here are all the things we're doing to prove to you guys that we are, you know. Uh, anti-racist and virtuous, and and all of that. But if, in conversation with the people of colour that we're working with, it becomes apparent that that kind of statement is actually really important, then we'll do that. I don't necessarily think I'm the right person to make that judgement.
1: When we formulated the series of the podcast, it came from a place of anger. But it's November now, and there's definitely more hope in everything that we've been talking about. If those were the two extremes, where do you sit right now?
2: Minute by minute, I stand in very different places. And I think for me, it's probably encapsulated in how I felt as Kamala Harris walked out on whenever it was, 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. And it felt so extraordinary. And then in the same moment, it felt so depressing. I felt like, oh my God, this is amazing. And holy fuck. How can this in 2020 be amazing? You know, like how have we not got further than this? And then we watched it again with my daughter the next day, and I was holding her as we watched it, and and it was it was really difficult because I found I I found myself saying, "Look, um, this is the first time in history that a woman." And a woman of color has walked out as the vice president elect. And in the same moment that I was celebrating that, that I was telling her how amazing that was, I was furious with myself, with the world, that I was telling my four and a half year old daughter that that was a thing to be excited about. Because I wanted, I wanted also to say to her, it is, Unforgivable that this is the first moment that has happened. So, uh, (laughs) see, even as I give you the answer to that question, I sit minute by minute in a space of fury and joy. And I'm white. The depth of my feeling on this in terms of that moment is coming from being a woman. So, I can't even begin to know how it feels when. All of those things are feeding into that emotion for you. I
1: think that's a good place to end. Jasmine, anything from you at all?
0: I just want to say that I feel like this is the most honest conversation I've ever had with an arts leader in Wales. A lot of what you said does resonate with me. I think it's that shared womanhood, but I agree it's incredibly frustrating, but at the same time, I feel like I have to cling on to that hope that things will get better, and I think hearing you I do believe that this will get better.
2: Well, that means that means the world. Do you know what I found that I'm, I suddenly realized I'm hugging myself. <laughs>
0: as I was, when you
2: asked me where I stood between anger and hope, I suddenly realized I, I started clutching myself. Jasmine, that means the world. <sighs> I think all I can do as a white leader in this moment is try to be honest. It's both the most difficult thing because I am ashamed and I am frustrated with myself, with the world, all of those things. But also the easiest thing to do because it's nowhere near as hard for me. The other thing that's interesting to me is that the hardest bit of this conversation was the bit where you asked me what we're doing. Because,
1: uh, is that because you don't want to talk about it? No,
2: no, it's not that. It's because none of it feels enough. It's because we're still searching for it... It's, I guess, because I strongly believe that you have to take the small steps in order to take the big ones. But the small steps also feel pants, because you want to be taking the big ones. So yeah, that's the hardest bit.
1: Season 2 of the Critically Speaking podcast was the joint effort of many talented and hardworking people, and they all deserve to be praised. So I'd like to thank Dr. Adiola Davis Aki Gurung, Alice Eklund, Connor Allen, Dure Shahwad, Edith Fez Mia, Jafferin Khan, Jasmine Grace O'Kay, Mali Ann Reese, Radha Patel, Sadia Pineda Hamid, Selena Kaimau and Shane Nichols. I'd like to thank my guests for giving us their time. And of course, I'd like to thank Arts Council Wells for funding the project. Now you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Critically Speaking. And please, if you liked what you heard, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But that's all for now. Until next time, thank you. Diach.